you didn't think you were going to get a video of a guy smoking a cigarette in church this morning, did you? <laughs> that surprised me when I saw it earlier. Look, I'm not here to tell you not to smoke. That's between you and your physician and God. But I'm Daniel Wagner, the College and Young Adults Pastor here. It's the best way I thought to start this sermon out, where we're talking about, uh, for the next four weeks, this series, I've Got Issues. And I'm standing here saying, hi, my name's Daniel, and I have issues. And uh, if you're out there, you probably would admit in some areas of your life and you've got some issues, you've got some problems that you're facing, you've got some challenges that feel uh, too big for you. You've got things that probably by your own fault and your own doing, let's just start off with honesty here, uh, you're living in and, and working through and then just in the way that the world works and the way that life is hard and Satan moves in and through people sometimes, uh, you've probably got some things that have been done to you that you're working through. And then in the way that the, the universe works, that God has ordained it, not that the universe is some cosmic force, but in the way that God allows uh, bad things to happen sometimes. You got some issues there. So for the next four weeks, I wanna encourage you to lock in here in this room. If you're joining us online, grateful for you, keep coming back, so that we can work together on these issues that we have. Because uh, as I'll say later, Jesus is in the business of healing and growth. So uh, before we get started today, I want to just go ahead and tell you what I'm talking about. Week one, uh, I get anxious. That's what we're looking at this week, anxiety and feeling anxious. Now, right off the top, so I avoid angry emails from any of you. Let's put this on the screen. Everyone has anxiety, but some people's anxiety is clinical. Now, I don't want you to be in the first party and say, hey, I don't have clinical anxiety. I, I, I'm not on medication. I'm not going to a therapist and check out. I also don't want you to be uh, in that second category and say, hey, yep, I got people that are working on me, working, working with me, I'm working on myself, and check out there. But together, I want to say that every person has anxiety, but some people's anxiety is in this next category where it's clinical. Again, a word for everybody. And not that I'm trying to diagnose you from up here. I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a, a professional counselor. But I would say, man, maybe today I, I would pray, and I pray that you'd pray for yourself would maybe expose some things in you, that you may have some anxiety that you have not really acknowledged, not really spoken to in your own heart and in your own mind. And maybe this could be the first step for a lot of healing for you. That would be my really sincere prayer as we're here together. Now, everyone has anxiety. Let me tell you a story about myself, uh, a time that I had a, a lot of anxiety. Uh, a couple of months ago, whenever we were allowed to go to public places and touch people, there was a situation when I was in this place, uh, man, where God's presence was just there. You know, like you're, you're in a place and you know that the special blessing and favor and anointing of the Lord is in a building. So I found myself in one of those places, a Cracker Barrel, about a year ago. And as I was in this Cracker Barrel, I was eating my pancakes, as one does at Cracker Barrel. And behind me, uh, my back was kind of to the rest of the restaurant, I heard this lady begin to choke. Like, you know, whenever you're in a restaurant and there's that moment where there's like, <coughs> and you think, all right, yeah, maybe somebody's coughing. I don't really know what's going on here. And then that sound went on more and more. So I did what any decent person would do and turned around and watched this person start to choke. We've all been there, right? Looking for somebody else to step up and do something. Well, this lady was eating with her daughter. Her daughter stood up, adult daughter, and started to perform the Heimlich on her, and it, it was unsuccessful. And I surveyed the room, and as often as in Cracker Barrel, 
Uh, I was absolutely the youngest person in the room. <laughs> Lots of uh, older people there who I'm sure had a lot of strength themselves, but it seemed like I was the candidate to go and perform the Heimlich maneuver on this lady. So I went and, and did what anybody would do and asked you know, for uh, consent first. I said, hey, are you okay if I potentially break your ribs doing the Heimlich maneuver? And she like nodded yes and uh, did the Heimlich on this lady. Whatever food she had came up. Now, in that moment, you know, uh, most people, most normal people, would probably feel some sense of like pride or accomplishment, right? Like, hey, yeah, I, I just did a good thing. I saved that lady's life, right? N- not me. I go back to my table and I sit down uh, across from Carly and my wife and I say, finish your food. We have to leave right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we sit down. She eats her food really quick. I like get the waiter over to get a to-go box. And then we, uh, I-, I pay in cash <laughs> so that there's no record of me being there. Why? Why? Well, because I have problems. I have issues. But most importantly, uh, you know, I was worried that, that somehow this good deed could come back on me, right? Like, we live in a uh, culture where there's a lot of litigation, grateful for a lot of attorneys in the room. I know you guys would have had my back if I was trying to save somebody's life and they came from my head. But, uh, you know, that, that feeling for me of like something could go wrong, this, this might not work out well, even though I did this thing, I know that this could be misconstrued, that this situation might not work out in the future like I wish that it would. And there was this feeling of anxiety that came over me, right? And what did that do? That, that robbed me from enjoying my pancakes, what I came there to do. And your anxiety is probably really similar, right? You are concerned that something will not go the way that you think it will. You have a, a vision, uh, a trajectory for the way that you think something might develop, and typically with anxiety, that's in a bad direction, a negative way. That's what anxiety does to us. Now, uh, you were probably anxious before this pandemic, and I don't want to spend a long time talking about COVID because I feel like that's all anyone does. But in talking about anxiety today, I think I'd be really uh, remiss. I think I would do a bad job if I did not show you guys some data on the uptick of COVID and uh, anxiety. So on the left, that says that 11% of adults were reporting symptoms of an anxiety disorder and or a depressive disorder. Now, anxiety and depression are different, but I will say this, that it is well documented. There are lots of physicians in the room that would attest to this, that prolonged periods of untreated anxiety can lead to depression. So those things are often correlated, not always, but it can go there. From January to June of 2019, so that's a little bit of a sample we had before, Uh, Most things started to change in the world in March of 2020. And then this is data from uh, the first two weeks, I'm sorry, the second and third week of January 2021. Uh, The same organization, NHIS, did the study. Uh, That's the specific study that they're citing there. We're on the left. It's a compilation of a lot of different studies that they did. But those numbers are 11% and 41.4. So that means that Four of every 10 of us in here could be somewhere in this chart. That's two in five if you boil the math down. And that is a lot of people that are feeling symptoms of anxiety. And here's what this study went on to say. I pulled this quote out. It said this, that the pandemic hasn't created as much anxiety in people as it's revealed the anxiety in people. It's not that the, uh, the tension we feel of what's the line between my personal freedom and, and loving and serving my neighbor. Am I doing a good job working from home or, or am I doing a bad job working from home? I have my kids in the house more. If you have kids more than you did before and that's something that creates anxiety in you, 
But these situations, uh, this, this COVID climate that we're in, has really just sped up the anxiety that people already had in them. For a lot of people, uh, COVID and COVID-related things are the straw that broke the camel's back. So here's what I want us to do today. Today, we're looking at one primary passage. We're going to look at one large passage of Scripture. We're going to look at two businesses that God is in, two things that God does that are his MO, and then three, we're looking at uh, three points about anxiety. One primary passage, two businesses God is in, three points about anxiety. Those are more for me than they are for you. Let's go to Matthew 14 today. If you're a paper Bible person, I'll give you time to turn there. If not, it's on the screen for us. I'm sure we're getting the Bibles back in the pews sometime soon, right, Robert? Yes, Robert says yes. There you go. It was a head nod, so not says yes, but, you know, nonverbals. Matthew 14, I think I've stalled long enough for us. This is what we have right here, a passage we're probably all familiar with, but I, I want, as best we can, for us to read it with fresh eyes in this climate. So, verse 22, immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he, that's Jesus, was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now let me give you some context around this passage so that it'll color where we're going to next. The two events that happened right before this picks up in this chapter in Matthew were Jesus feeding the 5,000, a great work of power and of mercy, where Jesus saw a crowd who wanted to know more about him with a real physical need, and he met it. And the account before that is the beheading of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, very close friend, someone that was in the circle of Jesus and his disciple and the crowd being killed by Herod. So we see this passage, I think, uh, not ironically and not by chance in the ministry of Jesus, coming at a time where there was a lot of uncertainty Right, John the Baptist, just beheaded, the one who said, hey, the one who's coming is, is greater than me. He must increase, I must decrease. So Jesus' disciples were probably thinking, man, if they got John, they're coming for us next. I don't want my head to roll. And Jesus, after he performs this great work, meeting people's physical needs, sends the disciples out and says, hey, you go ahead, I, I am, I'm gonna be alone, I'm gonna be in solitude. Something we see very critical to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Moments of solitude and reflection and prayer. Something he modeled for us that we all should follow him in. 
So the disciples are out on the boat, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the four uh, periods of watch in the Roman military, but that's okay. That's what I'm here for. I'll help you out. There were four periods that were the night watch from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and this says that the disciples here were in the fourth watch. So that means it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. whenever this was happening. Not usually great hours for mental clarity. They were out in this boat, and they had been fighting this storm for a while. You know, if it was stormy when they pushed off, they probably would not have gone out. But they're, at this point, probably three miles into a five-mile journey. So it makes more sense for them to go forward than it does for them to go back, as it does for most of us. So as they're going forward, this storm comes up. And when the storm comes up, they're fighting it, they're concerned, but their real concern comes whenever they say, it's a ghost. They think that it's a phantom, maybe uh, an evil spirit that's come to throw them off track to be outside of what Jesus has uh, sent them to go do. And it's, it's beautiful. I just want to say this uh, before I throw this point up on the screen, that the words that are recorded here that Jesus spoke to them are, uh, it's the, the Greek, ego imi, which is I am. So it, that your translation will say something like, yeah, yes, it's me, um, but he says, I am. And it would hit them in a place where they would think of Yahweh, the true and living God, who said to Moses, I am. And here's what I want to say. Uh, this business that Jesus is in is a, an anxiety-removing business. Jesus is in an anxiety-removing business. That's what he did here for the disciples on the water, and that's what he does here for you on April the 11th, 2021. He's in the anxiety-removing business. His person, his power, his presence, they bring peace to us. But I want to tell you that it's okay that you get anxious sometimes. Like, it is okay that you get anxious sometimes. Jesus uh, does not say here, hey, don't be afraid of the storm. Don't be afraid of this normal thing. But he says, hey, don't be afraid uh, that I'm a, a ghost, a spirit. Like your anxiety, the Bible tells you to do something with it. Like Jesus, uh, the way that he's built us and created us and designed us, we are going to feel healthy levels of anxiety. Right, like it's good sometimes, that anxiety response in you. Like you need that. You need uh, fight or flight moments. You need moments where your heart beats faster and you have greater mental clarity. Like that's the way that God has designed you. Anxiety uh, in a positive sense is, is, is in you. But it's this bad anxiety, this negative sense, this over anxiety. For some of us, this clinical anxiety. That's the thing that can rob us from perfect peace. Now, like I said earlier, you know, Jesus didn't say, uh, hey, why are you scared of this storm? Because a storm is a common thing. You know, it's a good thing to feel a healthy level of anxiety about. <laughs> Think about yourself. You don't take boats across lakes very often in storms. Maybe you've been stuck in the rain uh, on a boat. That's not a great experience. But Picture yourself driving down the road and a heavy storm comes. You're, you're going to feel a little nervous about that, right? That's a natural response that your body has. Now, there's another account where Jesus was asleep below the deck. The disciples were anxious about the storm. 
He said to the water, peace be still. So Jesus is concerned about storms. I'm not here to tell you that he's not concerned about storms. And I don't think I'm splitting hairs here or being overly specific, but I do want to point to the greater fear that we have, the deep fear. He said, don't be afraid in response to their statement that he was a ghost, something that was well outside of the disciples' power to handle. Right? Like they were doing okay getting across the boat in the storm, apparently. But when Jesus showed up as a ghost, so they thought they were worried. They didn't know what to do with that. Like they did not have any power in and of themselves to handle this ghost. Now I'm telling you, like Jesus is here for your big and small storms. Like he cares for you at all times. He wants you to take all anxiety to him. I'm going to get there later. But what I want to challenge you with is this. Like often we are okay giving Jesus our little struggles, the little anxieties we have, but we withhold the big ones from him. Like those are the ones we keep close to the chest. Those are the ones that we say, yeah, Jesus, yeah, um, you know, like I'm, I got this thing like with my friend and we're kind of sideways and, uh, you, you know, like you, you got that. I pray that they would figure out that I'm right and they're wrong. Amen. Like those are the kind of things that we do. What we don't do is, hey, Jesus, there's this, there's this strife like in my family. Right, like there's this thing that, that is, it's hindering peace and it's bleeding over into other areas of my life and I need your help. We don't do that. Like we don't give Jesus the bigger struggles because we keep those things close to the chest and we think that we can take care of those things. And I would tell you that's wrong. That's wrong. Now in looking at anxiety this week, uh, again, I'm not a counselor, not a psychiatrist, I'm, I'm an amateur reader at best. But there's a, a man that I found um, really in COVID who's been a great resource for me. I would highly recommend him. You know, no one writes everything perfectly, but this guy who's a, a psychiatrist, he's a Christian, his name's Dr. Kurt Thompson. Uh, and I, again, I'd recommend his work to you if you are, um, you know, in, in need of some resources around anxiety and around mental uh, disease. This is what he says about anxiety. So anxiety, as it turns out, is one of the most primal human distress responses. So it's in us, right? When something goes wrong, anxiety comes out. And it plays an instrumental role in helping us survive. But also in the emergence of many, although certainly not all, uh, psychiatric and relational maladies, that's things that go wrong, we become anxious for many reasons. But as I tell my patients, ultimately, the brain is made most anxious not merely by the presence or nature of a difficult or frightening situation, although circumstances from mildly distressing to severely traumatic are the vector for our anxiety, the condition that we ultimately fear is that of being abandoned. For indeed, as it's also written, it's not good for man to be alone. Much of our life's activities center around avoiding our awareness of this primal fear. So what people are the most afraid of often is being disconnected, unknown, and unloved by others and by God. Disconnected, unknown, unloved. That's what most of our anxiety is around, if if you're honest with yourself. If you think about the situation in your life right now that's making you the most anxious. There is a chance that you'll be disconnected, that you'll feel unknown, 
or that you'll think you're unloved by someone in your life or by God. And this is what we see the disciples feel on this boat. They think, Jesus, have you abandoned me? Have you left us out here to die? And then this ghost, so they think, shows up, and they think, this is it, we're done. Jesus is up there on a mountain somewhere, and we're out here on a boat about to die. This ghost is about to do whatever ghosts do to people. We're done. They feel abandoned by God. And your anxiety, the things that you feel are so uncontrollable, are the thing that you think could turn into a terrible reality. You're afraid that those things will result in you being unknown, unloved by people or by God. And I'll just tell you, that's not healthy and that's not good. Jesus has given you family. He's given you friends. Like he's given you this church that I pray for some of you would be one of the most meaningful connections you have here. And he's given you his Holy Spirit that he's put inside of you and promised that he'll never leave or forsake you. So why is your bad anxiety a bad thing? Why is your bad anxiety a bad thing? I'd say this, it's because your anxiety could reveal a doubt or maybe for some of you even a refusal to take God as word. It can reveal a doubt or a refusal to take God at his word. God, I know you said that in the Bible, but I don't believe it. I don't think you really care. I don't know if you're really there, and if you're really there, I know you don't care. When we go and let our anxiety get the better of us, when this thing that we think might turn out in the future is the thing that's all-consuming for us, and we refuse to let God do his work. Like our circumstances take the better of us, and we refuse to let God do his work. I want to give you a phrase, because this has really helped me whenever I've thought about my own anxiety, moments of anxiety. That anxiety is what uh, psychiatrists call a future state phenomenon. It's a future state phenomenon. Now, what does that mean? It means that you see something going a certain way, and that's all you can think about anymore. <laughs> so you see the way that you get sideways with your hypothetical friend, and you're right and they're wrong. You heard it here. You see the way that this thing could break down. You see the way that it could ruin a friendship, where it could bleed into your work, or your family, or your marriage, or whatever it is. Because all you can see is that one thing working out in the way that you think it will. And really, for those who are super anxious, the way that you think you know it will. <laughs> like, you've got divine vision. Like, you've got the ability to see the future. Like, that's the most significant thing in your life. Like, we elevate our problems into the place of Jesus, and that's where we get ourselves in trouble. Like, they become our first and foremost, and not the God who wants to help us take care of our problems. But in this future state anxiety, this future state phenomenon that we all feel, we have constructed how the next days, weeks, months, years are going to work out if this one thing doesn't land the right way for us. Now that we probably all feel anxious about something since I've reminded you of it, let me say this, that it's okay to get help for your anxiety. That's the second point about anxiety. It is okay for you to get help for your anxiety. 
Man, if you feel anxious, if you feel overwhelmed, if you feel like the walls are caving in on you, like you can't drag yourself up out of bed in the morning, like you, you don't want to eat a meal, like you just don't think you can take another breath, And I know that there are some of you that are in this room that feel like that. And I know that there are some of you that are online that feel like that. And I just want to give you permission. I want to help you, right? Like as a pastor, as someone who's committed to God and his word and his ways, it is okay for you to go get help. And I would say it's right for you to go get help. Like you need that. We... Because of your generosity here, if you follow God and the biblical commandment of the tithe and the offering, we have a great partnership with uh, a counseling group called Cornerstone. We believe in them. We believe in Lee Smith and his team. We're so grateful for them and the way that they lead uh, in helping people. But man, here's the deal. Like, we can only help you if you want to help yourself. So reach out, find an email, find a phone number. Find a friend. Like if your anxiety is crippling or you think it might be, we want to help you get on the right side of that. Why? Because my second point about God is that he's in the business of bringing health and growth. Health and growth. That's what Jesus Christ does. We're sitting here uh, the Sunday after Easter. Man, Easter was a great day, right? It was just good to be here. If you were in the house on Easter Sunday... And there was just some real life. It felt like a place uh, in a non-ironic sense, not like Cracker Barrel, where God's favor and presence and power were. Man, it was a good day. But so many of you who, who would profess the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who would attest to his power to do immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine, you are letting something in your life consume you. Right, like Jesus has died for your sins, you're okay with that? But he's not one that wants to help you in your mind overcome your most significant challenge. Like give him that right, give him that power, give him that proper place in your life. Because that's the business he's in, bringing health and growth, health and growth. Let's keep going in Matthew 14 here. When they had crossed over, so the disciples and Jesus made it in their boat, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Now, you uh, are, are hearing me talk about Jesus' healing ministry and healing work. Probably not something that's new to you if you've been around Jesus for a while. But here's what's fascinating to me about this and about his ministry here at Gennesaret. There's no record of Jesus having gone to Gennesaret, at least during the time of his public ministry, before this account. So what we see are these people, the men, the people of this land. What's it say? Recognized him. Well, how'd they recognize somebody that they'd never seen in person before? because they knew the business that Jesus was in and bringing health and growth. So when they heard that this Jesus of Nazareth had come to them and they were so excited and they wanted to be a part 
of the great healing, the great need meeting that Jesus had done in so many other areas there in Palestine. So these people came to him. They said, Lord, we believe that you're so great, that you're so powerful, that we're so unworthy to be in your presence. Lord, if you, if you just let us touch the hem of your garment, if you just let us touch a little bit, we know that you're so powerful that you can heal us. Like we know that your, your person, who you are, you can make us better. I mean, they sought him out with such a hunger and God blessed that. Are you seeking him out? Do you want help? If you've got an issue, do you want to give it to him? Now, how is he in this business of health and growth? Man, he's given common graces like doctors, so thankful for so many of you who can help uh, people combat chemical imbalances in brains, which are a real thing. You can help people work through trauma that's been done to them or trauma that they've invited into their own life. Man, I, I, would, I would beg you, beg you, that you would be here in a, in a group, uh, that you would find a group of people that you can live your life with, that are friends, that are committed to the things of God, that can help you process through things in your life. And one of the most common ways I think that God gives us to fight our anxiety is uh, the way that he's built us, that he's designed us. There's this concept that's called neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. And it's this idea that you can change and train your brain. Right, like your brain is a very complex machine with neurons and synapses, things wired together. And how your brain is wired together, ultimately it will fire together. So the patterns that you are building into yourself now those are the ways that your body will respond. How you're wired together, you'll fire together. But you can change and train your brain. Now, this is not the section where we uh, transition into a Christian TED talk. Like, that's not what I want for you. But I think Romans 12, 2 is really true here, where Jesus talks about us uh, being living sacrifices to him by the renewal of our mind by making our minds new. That's the business the Christian is in. If you claim to follow Jesus and you want your life to stay the same, I would challenge the sincerity of your faith. But neuroplasticity, you can change and train your brain specifically in areas of anxiety. I'm gonna show you a series of pictures here. This first one, it's just weird, here you go. This is a Tibetan monk watching a small television in what's basically a closet with a bunch of electrodes on his head. The context for this is that there was a study that was done uh, in the 2000s, early 2000s, where uh, they found that people who had meditated, so they looked at Tibetan monks principally, had overdeveloped, essentially, this certain portion of their brain that led to peace and joy and where the seat of, of good works, essentially, were, responding to needs. So they hooked people like you and me up who probably uh, are too busy, they think, undisciplined, not great at reflecting or seeking solitude with the Lord. And they found that these monks were, and they were brushing people under the table. I mean, it was just it was unbelievable how overdeveloped certain portions of their brain were. Now, what am I trying to say here, not for us to switch to Tibetan monkdom to become Buddhist, 
but that the benefit of spirituality that these guys had experienced, man, it was profound compared to just your average Joe off the street. So, the second picture. This is a guy holding a cricket bat, cricket stick. Any cricketers in here? Anybody cricket? Robert crickets. <laughs> to me, it looks like the catcher was like the first one to bat, so he didn't have time to take his gear off and he just stepped up. But that's a cricketer, and uh, he has a bat. There was a study that was done uh, a couple of years ago in England. I think that's why they chose cricket. But what they found is that there's this concept called um, temporal occlusion, which basically means you can see, not like they can see the future, but that they could anticipate that the way that the cricket ball was bowled, that's what they call pitching, the way that it was bowled, they could tell how it was going to travel. And they studied people at kind of the high school amateur level, at the collegiate university level, and then in the professional level. Like, that's what they found, boom, boom, boom. And that as you went up, as you had had more time to look at the way that a ball was bowled, you're going to be better at guessing what was going to happen next. Now, some of you are doing this too well with your anxiety. You think you know what can happen next. But if that was true, there would be no, uh, those things are called wickets. No wickets would get knocked down in your life. You would be able to take care of every problem, every situation, everything. Something goes sideways at work, boom, you got it in your power. Something's off in your marriage, boom, you got it in your power. You're sideways with a friend, boom, you got it in your power. An illness comes up, boom, you magically heal yourself. That's the way that we operate sometimes because we think we've seen enough of this stuff play out. But what I'm telling you here is that your brain adapts. It adapts. And the third picture, not a person, but a train track. This is not your life is at a crossroads. It may be at a crossroads today. But the way that your brain, like I said earlier, is wired together is how it's going to fire together. The neurons in your brain and they run a similar track. So if you are feeding anxiety in your life today, if you're letting it drive the train in your mind and not the peace that surpasses all understanding, more times than not, guess where your train's going? To the anxious side of your brain, on the anxious path. You're worried about this thing today? When the same situation comes up in three years, you're probably gonna be worried about that thing. The issue that consumes you tomorrow could be the issue that consumes you in six years. Think about the long arc of your life. Like I pray God would give everyone in here health and a long life. But what are you doing today to ensure that that's a life of peace, the abundant life that Jesus wants to give you? Switch your mind. Choose peace. Choose trust. Now, here's what I want to say. This is not uh, ABC, one, two, three. Sometimes healing is going to come, and sometimes it's, it's not. And if you've got a chronic um, and severe anxiety, God is going to bring slow healing for you, I pray, for years to come. If you're a casual worrier like me, I pray that that comes quickly. But sometimes healing is going to come and sometimes it's not. Just look at Paul. Paul had a thorn. 
something he pleaded for the Lord to take away three times from him. What was it? Who knows? Maybe a past he couldn't get over. Maybe an illness. He left someone sick somewhere. So Paul, who had healed and and called on the name of Jesus and healed and performed miracles, he left someone sick, meaning either the Lord didn't have it for that guy to get healed or something, but he left Trophimus, Trophimus and Miletus. And then Paul told Timothy to drink wine for his frequent stomach problems. You didn't think you were going to see a cigarette on the TV and someone tell you to drink wine at Foner Church this morning. Don't misconstrue that. But we see this guy who was serving the Lord, Timothy, wholeheartedly, a young guy with a lot of future, have this illness, this ailment, this thing that he needed to be healed from. But I would challenge you with this, man. Just because you've been trying or actually trying to move past anxiety that's crippling, that's choking the life out of you, It is not okay to leave your anxiety untreated or unaddressed. Like it is not okay because those train tracks and your brain, the way that it works, it will take you to an anxious, untrusting place where you don't believe God at his word, that he will be one who sees you through your struggles, one who does give peace and who desires to take those anxieties from you. Do not leave your anxiety untreated or unaddressed. Let me show you what could happen for you. In Mark 6, this is an account of something that actually happened in Matthew 13, but Mark writes it differently than Matthew does. So this happened right before the feeding of the 5,000, right before the beheading of John the Baptist, right before Jesus healed these people who sought to touch the hem of his garment. He said to him, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. A passage a lot of you might be familiar with that Jesus went home to Nazareth and he was rejected by people. They said, hey, we know you. Like, we, we, we know your family. We know your sisters and your brothers and you grew up over there and you worked over there and it's just old JC from Nazareth. They dismissed Jesus's power Like they dismissed what he wanted to do in them. And here's what Mark says. He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now this is not like Jesus is like um, Tim Allen and the Santa Claus where you gotta have like a believometer or something. And like, if you don't believe in Jesus, he's not gonna work. But what I'm telling you is, is there's something reciprocal in the nature of God where he wants from us faith and he wants us to seek him and he wants us to ask. So many of you are guilty of not having because you don't ask. You're not knocking, you're not seeking, but this is a God who wants to answer your prayers and who wants to give you perfect peace. And I'll finish with this. See, here's the thing. God just isn't out here trying to make you feel better because he's bored or because he's fond of you. But the God of the universe wants to give you peace because he's so intimately concerned with your life that he wants you to give him your worries. In fact, he commands it. Like it is a command from God 
to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's a command in Philippians 4 through prayer and petition and supplication and everything to make your requests made known to God. Now, I'm an uh, amateur linguist. I'm much better at, at Greek than I am at Hebrew. But here's this Hebrew concept. Um, it's a word called galal. And this is what we see a lot in the Psalms and in the Proverbs whenever we see Jesus telling us to, um, to trust him with our steps, to trust him with our plans. Now, it's this concept that's used in other passages that aren't in the Psalms or Proverbs where it talks about rolling your burdens uh, off on the Lord in those passages because the other ones talk about moving a rock or a stone. So this is what we see, like Psalm 55, 22 is a great example. I'm doing this from up here. Uh, to, to commit your plans to the Lord, to give your ways to the Lord, because he will not permit the righteous to be moved. Right? He'll not permit the righteous to be moved. Whatever struggle, whatever challenge, whatever thing you face, yes, it may get rocky. You may be in a storm but you will not be moved. Like you will have sure foot in Jesus Christ. But to give those things, to roll your worries over onto the Lord. I'm gonna invite the band back up and I'm gonna read this quote to you guys from a guy named George Mueller, who was a, a pastor in the 1800s, in the 19th century. And he was a guy who had a, a great preaching and teaching ministry, but his real legacy is that he, in his lifetime, and in his ministry, cared for over 10,000 orphans in England. Over 10,000 orphans. When he started doing uh, ministry to orphans, caring for orphans, there were about 3,000 beds for children under 10 in England, and about twice that many that were in prison at the time. There just wasn't any room for him, and he was so moved, not just to seek out solution to his own worries, but to be a provider of peace to others. That this is what George Mueller would say uh, about asking great things of God and trusting him to take care of burdens. See, Christians are permitted, they're not only permitted, but invited, and not only invited, but commanded to bring all their cares, sorrows, trials, and wants to their Heavenly Father. They are too roll their burdens upon God. It's not simply great matters we're to bring before God and not simply the small things, but everything. Therefore, let all our affairs, whether they're temporal or spiritual, let us bring them before God. And this for the simple reason that life is made up of the little things. Your life's made up of the little things. But are you giving those little things to the Lord? Do you trust him with your challenges? Do you trust him with your temptations? Do you trust him with your hard situations? He wants to do a work in you. Let him do it. Y'all let him do it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and I'm grateful for you. Lord, every man and woman and child, you are God of peace and a God of clarity. Lord, sometimes we don't see it, sometimes we don't know it, Lord, but you're there and you're working in us and through us and for us. You are our advocate, seated in power. Lord, things don't always go the way that we would like, but 
Lord, you have ways that are higher than ours and plans that are perfect. So God, would we be faithful to trust you in the hard things? Would we be faithful to trust you, God, even in the easy things? Lord, would our mind be transformed to a life of of need, God? That we would say, we need you. Jesus, we need you. Would you be near to us, Lord? And Holy Spirit, would you give us more of that perfect peace?